Now, in my early 20s, I lived in Israel for a couple of years working for a Christian charity, which was a total adventure, really, but not always easy. Firstly, because looking at me, you'll see I'm not exactly built for the Middle Eastern climate, and by the end, I could have basically owned shares in suntan cream. But I also remember a particularly hard season when one of our team members had to immediately go back home um, after a family tragedy. And um, our team leaders traveled back to support her, but on their return to Israel, they got stopped at airport security and told they had to leave the country um, under suspicion of being Christian missionaries. So, total nightmare. And I was given the job of leading the team in that moment, and I was feeling like, wow, I'm like totally out of my depth here. I'm feeling a long way from home, and frustratingly, I still can't develop a base tan after two years in the sun. Uh, all, all of that, and in that place, I found myself really desperate for God. And I found this part of the Bible I'd not taken that much notice of before, an amazing collection, really, of songs and of poems. And I remember I had my guitar in my room, and I'd pick up my guitar, and I'd make up these terrible tunes, um, but to these beautiful ancient words that seemed to speak so much into my own situation. And it really wasn't about the songwriting, though, and I'll spare you from playing any of them today. What I really fell in love with was being able to use these raw, unfiltered emotions to process my heart with God and to bring my emotions to Him. Many of you will have guessed the part of the Bible I'm talking about is the book of Psalms. And wave at me if you've had a similar experience ever with the book of Psalms. A few people, yeah, quite a few people have had that. And I guess they're so comforting, aren't they, in those times of trouble? And even if you've never read a psalm before, perhaps, you, you're probably familiar with some of the words we find there, beautiful words, like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46. We could just do the whole sermon just recounting these amazing lines from Psalms, but we're not going to do that. Psalms are often considered a favorite part of the Bible, though. But why? I asked Joe, who comes here recently, what he makes of it, and he, de he describes Psalms as heart scriptures, heart scriptures, the place where he'd been able to find his voice in his relationship with God. And the Psalms have actually always been treasured through the history of the church. Uh, this guy, Athanasius, the fourth century church father, writing a long letter to a friend, was encouraging him just to read them more because he says, in the Psalms, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, the changes, the ups and the downs, its failures and recoveries, and of course, you bring them to God. So it's great today. We're starting a five-week series called Summer in the Psalms, and hopefully the weather will be with us as well. But just by way of background, though, historically, the Psalms are a collection of 150 songs and poems put together into a kind of hymn book, for the people of Israel originally. They're found in the Old Testament part of the Bible, so written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And in terms of literature, the Psalms are really full of figurative language. So we might find God described as a rock or a shield or having wings under which we can find refuge. And of course, these aren't supposed to be taken literally, but they're word pictures that speak to our hearts. It's helpful to be aware also that the Psalms have different types to them. So we might get um, a, a psalm of lament or a psalm of petition or praise. The language we find in them can be pretty emotive and, and sometimes really a bit of a shocker, which means psalms are not necessarily the book um, to read and then think, I should automatically just go and do likewise. We need to sort of have that interpretation as we're reading them. This week, we're starting with Psalm 1. 
And I'm going to invite Wale and, and Matt, who's already here, um, because we're, we're going to actually just have the psalm read to us with some music in the background, because, of, of course, these psalms would have originally all been with music. And so, yeah, Wale, why don't you come now, and we're going to have some music too. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked, in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Thank you so much, Wale. It might be nice to have that keyboard playing for the whole sermon as well. <laughs> in types of, in, in, um, now, Psalm 1, actually, is a bit of an outlier. It's pretty different from the other 149 in the collection. And it actually fits into a, a type of writing in the Bible called wisdom literature, which often presents truth in kind of direct and stark terms. And one of the purposes of wisdom literature is often to really bring us um, or highlight to a choice that we need to make, even if that can be a little bit uncomfortable. So Psalm 1 presents us with this kind of thing, this uncompromising description of these two paths of life, one of blessing for the righteous, the other of destruction for the wicked. Now, wherever you are right now in your life, whether things feel great at the moment or, or really hard, whatever your thoughts are about God, I think we can all probably agree we want to live life well, don't we? We want to find the right path. We want to find the secret to the good life. But how do we get there? And cue Psalm 1, which speaks right into the heart of this situation. Did you notice the first word, blessed? It could be translated happy or favored. So at the outset of the book of Psalms, we find this invitation into a life of blessing and I think it's a lovely reminder that God wants each of us to know and to live the best kind of life, fruitful, abundant, life as it was meant to be lived. That's his heart for us. And of course, none of us are going to turn that option down, are we? You know, thanks for the offer of the blessed life, but I'll take the one about doom and destruction, please. Of course not. But what do we need to do? Now, this is made a whole lot more complicated because there are so many competing voices, right, in our culture trying to persuade us. Each one has a different message about the right path to find fulfillment and happiness. Okay, some of them are less subtle than others. Think for a moment, though, about the principle of cause and effect, of sowing and reaping, what we need to put in to get out a desired outcome. And Psalm 1, it plays into that principle. It's giving us God's wisdom for our lives today. Practical ways 
that we can invest in order to receive God's blessing. Before we get to what we need to do, though, let's take a closer look at the two pictures in Psalm 1, these vivid descriptions of the outcomes of the two paths. So first, it's the tree by the stream. It's of a person who lives a fruitful life, described in verse 3. The person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. It's a powerful image, isn't it? But some of its power for the original hearers might be a little bit lost on us, living where we do. The author of Psalm 1, he's writing to the people of Israel, where the climate is very different. Okay, it wasn't that different a few weeks ago, was it? But usually it's different. So go with me on this. The southern half of Israel actually is mostly desert. And and this is a picture of the Judean desert. And um, it's really a horribly dry and hostile environment. On one occasion, I remember getting out of a coach, and it was 41 degrees a temperature that now we're, of course, familiar with, but that was at 9 o'clock in the morning. And the record here, I think, is 54 degrees. Imagine that. Even the hardiest plants don't stand a chance in these conditions, do they, unless they're by water. And into that context, the writer of Psalm 1 writes this, describing the life of the prosperous, like a tree planted by the streams of water. So the contrast of a tree planted by a stream to one by dry land on dry land would immediately connected with the original hearers. In the same Judean desert, there's actually this amazing oasis called En Gedi. And it's beautiful. It's only a few minutes' walk from where I got out of that coach in 41 degree heat. And it sits on top of natural springs that form streams coming from deep underground. And so, of course, along the edges of the streams, you find trees bursting with life as well as wilting tourists who are jumping in. Now, Psalm 1 tells us that prosperous people are like this, like a tree planted by streams of water. So this tree is healthy, it grows, it matures, it's secure, and it's always resourced. Because it doesn't rely on uncertain rains that come and go, maybe the external circumstances, it's got an unbroken source providing it with the nourishment it needs. And so it has strong roots that can withstand adversity. Because of that, the tree yields its fruit in season. And in times of drought, trees stop being able to grow fruit, of course. The fruit will be stunted or sparse or just drop off. But the tree rooted by the stream, it continues to yield fruit and thrive. It's a tree whose leaf does not wither. And of course, leaves are essential, aren't they, for the growth of any plant. We all remember the classic science lessons on photosynthesis. What was, that, what was the formula again? Water and sunlight, carbon dioxide equals oxygen and energy for growth. And there's no shortage of sunlight or CO2 in the Middle Eastern climate, but with only those two, the, weaves will quick, the leaves will quickly wither and die. It's only when water added is added that the tree will grow strong and bear fruit. And so this is the first picture used to describe the blessed person who's found the path of life. For that reason, whatever they do prospers. Sounds really great, but what does that actually mean to prosper? Now, many of you might remember uh, a guy who used to come here, Duncan Jones, who passed away a few years ago. Duncan was not someone who you'd immediately link with the word prosperity. He actually had a number of medical conditions from childhood, which meant for much of his life he was unable to work and had sort of financial limitations because of that. 
Also, some of Duncan's conditions were really debilitating, so many of the activities we'd take for granted were really a challenge for him. But when meeting or spending time with Duncan, it was all too easy to forget the difficulties he faced. Because I think it's fair to say that Duncan was basically always the most positive person in the room. He never complained about his lot in life. I never heard him speak badly about anything or anyone. Instead, he radiated this joy and peace and love for people. It was just infectious and really inspiring. So while Duncan might not have prospered in health or wealth, he did so in countless other more meaningful ways. Whether it was constantly building deep friendships in small groups, or serving on the countless teams that he got involved in here, or just encouraging younger guys in the church to just get into the Bible and be everything they could be. The more I got to know Duncan, the more I concluded his flourishing life, his beautiful character, they weren't because of an, like a natural personality. It was a power coming from another source. Duncan was the tree by the stream. He was constantly tapping into hidden resources. And because of that, he was always finding ways to grow and to prosper. And through the Bible, especially Jesus' teaching, we see that prosperity doesn't equate to earthly wealth, lots of nice stuff, things we might automatically think of. Instead, we find prosperity being about having God's blessing running through all of our relationships, our activities, perhaps most of all our character, the type of person we are. Think, for example, of a list um, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, beautiful character markers of a truly prosperous life, traits that will make sure that someone flourishes and thrives no matter what the circumstances are. So that's the first picture, the blessed person, a well-watered tree, always prospering. But what about the second one, the chaff, the wind that blows, the, the chaff, the wind blows away? The writer presents us with this complete contrast in verse 4. Even if, like me, you can't remember for the life of you what chaff is when you heard this, you know it's not good, right? Well, chaff is a word borrowed from the world of farming. When wheat is harvested, there's both the, the grain of the wheat and then the stuff surrounding it, the husk or, or the chaff. And we use the grain to make our Weetabix or other equally valid cereal choices. But you can't eat the chaff. So after it's separated, it's usually just thrown away, discarded. It's not edible or that much use for anything else, so basically it's worthless. And because chaff is so lightweight, any breeze will just quickly carry it off. So here's the vivid description, the vivid contrast of Psalm 1, the two outcomes of these two paths. The tree planted by the stream, growing, thriving, bearing fruit. The chaff, dry, inedible, without root or weight. So it's like hands up for the chaff option. Of course, none of us would say that, would we? So back to the question, what do we need to do? What's the investment that we need to make? Well, verse 2 tells us. It's the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. The two paths diverge on what we make, really, of, of this book. And there are so many things that we could say about it. It's profoundly shaped, really, our whole civilization and culture. In its pages, we discover who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But here we find 
the simple encouragement of Psalm 1, delight and meditate day and night. Now, I wonder what your relationship with the Bible is right now. Perhaps you're new to all of this and you're thinking, seriously, I have to start studying this ancient textbook? Is that what you're saying to me? If, If that is you, firstly, we're thrilled that you're here. And of course, there's no pressure at all to do that. But there is an invitation. And if um, you don't have a Bible and you struggle to get one, we'd love to give one to you today. Just head to the Connect area after the service and the team can help you with that. Perhaps, if you, perhaps for some of you, you know, reading or listening to the Bible is really hard at the moment for any number of reasons. And if that's you, we'd love to just come alongside you and pray for you at the end of the service. But for others of us, while we get the kind of theory, we're still, if we're honest, struggling to have a daily or weekly or monthly relationship with the Bible, let alone meditate on it day and night. A few years ago, I remember a sermon by John Bodley in which he asked this question that really got to me. Imagine your Bible could talk. What might it say about your relationship with it? Like this one here, what might it say to you today? Things like, oh, I'm feeling cherished at the moment, loved, doted upon, delighted. Or maybe it would say other things. Have you been away somewhere recently, Ben? You know, I'm getting really familiar with sitting on this shelf. Now, this is not about us feeling bad. It's that Psalm 1 gives us a compelling vision and something we all ultimately want to find, the fruitful life that God longs for us to have. And this ancient wisdom, it gives us a key of what we need to invest in to get there. Delight and meditate day and night. Now, it's so inspiring to see people find this to be true in their own lives. People like James, who I met in, it was October 2016, over in the drinks area over there, and it was the first night of the Alpha course. James, you're over here. Good to see you. Now, James arrived at Alpha as an atheist with all sorts of questions about everything, not least the Bible. And I remember being one of his table hosts, and there was never a dull moment on our table. It was fantastic. During the course, though, James met Jesus in a really profound way and started a journey following him. And recently, we caught up, and James said he now does something at the start of every day, which was really unimaginable when we first met. He holds his Bible between his hands before the kids are up, and he asks God to reveal himself to him before opening to read. You know, James has found that the Bible is the thing he needs to help him stay on that path, walking with Jesus and living a fruitful life. Delight and meditate day and night. What about the meditate part? Meditation, a little bit of a strange word perhaps. Maybe we might automatically jump to thinking about the kind of Eastern meditation associated with emptying ourselves of everything. But meditation in Psalm 1 is very different. In fact, basically opposite to that. It's about being filled with something, with God's word so much that we're kind of constantly chewing it over, muttering on it, murmuring on it through the day. It's like it's percolating through us and changing us. Author and pastor Tim Keller says this, Eastern meditation is to, is to empty the mind of all rational thought and just be open to the universe. But Christian meditation is filling your mind with the word of God through which we believe God mediates his presence into our lives. So that's the encouragement for us. Delight and meditate day and night. What about more practically, though? Because this can be a real struggle. 
So after the over the last few weeks, I've asked a bunch of people who come here, you know, what do they do practically to really help them in this? And is a range of answers, and these are people that are not kind of Bible nerds. They wouldn't want to be known as experts. They're just regular folk here who've come to love the scriptures. And three main things came up. Firstly, find a consistent rhythm that works for you. Lots of, lots of people said that was like a, a really um, important thing. Find a regular time and space, perhaps exactly the same chair every morning to read. Toby, for example, does this. If he misses a day, that's okay, but he knows the discipline of building a routine will help him stay on track. Others like Izzy, much more spontaneous. You know, they'll tend to read the Bible at different times, different places, for different amounts of time. Some people use like a structured Bible plan that will take you through the Bible in a year or two. I've done this for a few years, and I used one called the Bible in One Year, which has got a great free app as well, which you know, gives you lots of helpful notes on it. I used to have it on my phone and do it on my phone, but then I got tempted to just look at um, the news or whatever, and so just got distracted. So now I bought like a hard copy, which helps me. There are loads of other great Bible apps out there as well, though. Um, on version, you can literally find hundreds. Some people I spoke to were more comfortable reading the Bible. Others were more about listening to it. Laura's husband, for example, Matt, he's dyslexic, and so he, he engages with the Bible by listening to someone else read it and then explain what it says, and he does that at the start of each day, and it kind of carries him through the day. Number two was read in community, read in community. One person who already knew their Bible well said reading with friends helped provoke them to think deeper and engage with what otherwise might just be overly familiar words. And one shared how he and three other guys went on a journey, really, of falling in love with the Bible by reading it together for like 180 days in a row. And a big part of that was them spurring each other on to do that. So perhaps over the summer, you know, why not ask one or two people to go on a journey with you? Maybe pick a book of the Bible and say, let's just read this together. Let's keep accountable. Number three is just ask the Holy Spirit for help. None of the people I chatted to were primarily reading the Bible for information, but for relationship, to help them know God and walk with Jesus. One person actually had studied the Bible to like degree level, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's great. But for them, it was only when they came back to the scriptures in a more personal way that it came alive to them again. The thing that James does um, is so helpful, I think, you know, starting each day, just holding the Bible, asking God to help. So simple, but right at the heart, I think, of what makes this work. So we're going to finish today by um, inviting Wale and Matt to come again and delighting and meditating again on Psalm 1. And we're going to do this really for each of the psalms we look at in the series. So Wale and Matt, if you're here, um, if you would just stand with me as well, we'll, we'll um, listen to the psalm being read and then we'll go into a time of of responding further in a time of prayer and ministry. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates in his law day and night. 
that person is like a tree planted by the streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers not so the wicked they are like chaff that the wind blows away therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked leads to destruction 